1: Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, just weeks from a statewide election, a new court challenge is looking to change the way Mississippi elects its governor. Then, a bite-sized tech question about what happens to your data when you die and some advice to help put your best foot forward with prospective employers. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A federal judge may soon rule on a Mississippi election law some attorneys argue is discriminatory. A provision in the 1890 Constitution requires a statewide candidate to win the popular vote and the majority of the 122 House districts. If no one wins, the election is decided by the House. Attorney Marina Jenkins is with the National Redistricting Foundation. She talks with MPB's Desiree Frazier about the argument she made in court Friday.
0: What happened to today was that Judge Jordan here, who's hearing a case that's that's been brought by four individual voters in Mississippi, challenging the electoral scheme uh, in the Mississippi Constitution that requires uh, candidates for statewide office to win both a majority of the popular vote and then also a majority of the electoral vote. And if a, an individual candidate doesn't win both of those things, then the House of Representatives of the state of Mississippi gets to decide who wins that statewide office so this applies to state to uh, governor lieutenant governor attorney general um, any statewide state office what's wrong with that Uh, Well, to begin with, it's history. So these provisions were enacted in 1890 as part of Mississippi's 1890 Constitutional Convention, whose express purpose was white supremacy. And so these are really old provisions that were designed to prohibit African Americans from uh, working together to uh, collaborate and, and gain political strength. And so um, from its inception, these provisions had the intent and they have unfortunately had the effect of limiting the ability of African-Americans in Mississippi to elect the candidates of their choosing.
2: There have been no African-Americans
0: elected to statewide office, not that they would have
2: gotten a majority of the vote. Have you seen evidence that this has been at play at all? up to date?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a history of voter suppression and intimidation. And, you know, the past hundred years um, across uh, states across this country, unfortunately, you know, one battle at a time. um, I, it's one of the reasons I went to law school is to, you know, fight these battles and, and to sort of continue that fight. And I know um, that we hope that, you know, this is one of the final vestiges of, of those terrible provisions.
2: Why is this coming up now, since it has been so long ago, that this was put in place?
0: This is um, the kind of thing I think that has gone just under the radar and that people um, didn't know about. You know, I think there's been discussion about how it was implemented and used in 1999. Um, and then I think, again, just sort of just you know, departed from public consciousness. And so, you know, when we started working with um, advocacy organizations down here and sort of talking about this, you know, some people sort of knew about it and said, oh, yeah, isn't that terrible? Like, I wish someone would do something about it. Or so, or they would say, I had no idea that that was the law. And so, you know, I think part of it is... Um, you know that that it just wasn't in the forefront of of folks' minds, and once we sort of started digging in and learning the history about it, um it just became sort of um we had no choice but to but to take action. What happens now so now we wait for Judge jordan to um Rule on the preliminary injunction. So, hopefully, uh, he indicated during the hearing uh, that he would like either side to appeal to the Fifth Circuit as soon as possible. So, um, my guess would be that he will make some decision uh, soon, probably within a week, if not, um, uh, you know, even even sooner. And um, and then imagine, you know, that wh- whichever side loses would appeal to the Fifth Circuit um, for the next step. And when
2: you say injunction,
0: that means. That means we would um, ask him to strike the provisions uh, from being able to be used uh, as applied to the no- November 5th election.
1: Marina Jenkins is an attorney with the National Redistricting Foundation. For a bit more perspective on Mississippi's law, which is the only one of its kind in the United States, we turn to Matt Steffi. He's a professor at the Mississippi College School of Law in Jackson. He spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier. The
3: way House districts are, are, are drawn Two thirds of them lean Republican and are comprised by mostly white voters, where one third of them are districts in the Delta, for example, that are overwhelmingly comprised of African-American voters. And so by design, this provision of the 1890 Constitution was written to make sure to thwart the potential impact of African-American voters. And there's there's really little doubt what its purpose was, because in the process of drafting the 1890 Constitution, the drafters told us what the purpose was, that this was a provision, like with poll taxes and literacy tests, that were designed to roll back the gains that African-Americans had made during Reconstruction. You know, we're all so familiar with somebody, uh, some elected official being the first African-American to hold a particular office since Reconstruction. And because that Reconstruction touchpoint remains the one kind of historic point of reference where African-American voters uh, were able to put in candidates of, uh, of their choice in a way that's rarely happened since, particularly in statewide elections and elections that aren't local.
2: Has it ever th- been applied when both candidates are white?
3: Yes, it, it, it has. Uh, uh, and the last time was during the election in, between Roddy Musgrove and Mike Parker. It was very, very close. Uh, Roddy Musgrove got slightly more uh, votes, but not 50 uh, percent. Uh, and it went uh, to the House. And the House has unbridled. The House of Representatives has unbridled discretion to pick a winner. At that time, uh, Musgrove had more votes and more districts, and importantly, the House was in Democratic hands. And so, M- Musgrove was selected as governor in a way that was fully consistent with the preference of a majority of voters. In This election cycle, however, we have the very real prospect of a Democratic candidate, uh, the sitting attorney general, uh, winning a majority of the popular vote, not carrying, however, a majority of the House districts, because so many of them are heavily, heavily Republican. And then the Mississippi House of Representatives will choose between Jim Hood, and Tate Reeves in a way that seems tremendously to favor Tate Reeves. Even if it doesn't happen through this election cycle, this lawsuit highlights the need that this law needs to be revisited so that we don't have litigation, a cloud of litigation hanging over the election.
2: Because it would be, under these circumstances, very difficult for an African-American, to win statewide office?
3: Let me tell you, if, it, it, it's, it, it's, almost, it's almost impossible. I have said for some time that I believe, by hook or by crook, that Tate Reeves will be the next governor because I think it's very difficult, uh, not just for an African-American candidate, but for the, uh, 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 the african Americans candidate of choice. And it's because African-American voters are packed into districts along the Delta that are almost, you know, a hundred percent African-American. And as a result, even though no state has a higher number of African-Americans than Mississippi, two thirds of the house districts are still predominantly uh, white. And given Tate Reeves political career if this gets to the House, the House that, that that's held by a Republican supermajority, it is impossible for to convince me that that House, under any circumstances, would hand the governorship uh, to to Attorney General Hood, even if Attorney General Hood got a majority of the popular vote.
1: Matt Steffi of the Mississippi College School of Law with our Desiree Frazier. Coming up, some advice to help put your best foot forward with prospective employers. That's after Bite Size Tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Welcome to this week's Bite Size Tech. I'm Jay White. On the show last week, a caller asked an important question. How would one go about getting access to files and documents that are password-protected of a recently deceased friend or loved one? Wilson and Jeremy take it from there, and the answer that they provide may not be as high-tech as you might expect. Here is this week's Bite Size Tech. I'm calling about ways to preserve one's password, past one's death, you know, the safe deposit boxes at the bank in which we put important papers so that our survivors can get access to insurance policies and investments and all of that. You know, recently a person passed unexpectedly and her family didn't know how to get access to her accounts. In fact, her computer was also password
3: protected. So I'm
4: just searching for ways that we can, you know, have our passwords available past our death. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And I think, uh, I think honestly you hit on, One of the simplest and low tech solutions for that. You know, it may seem a little bit low tech, but simply writing down those passwords and having them stored in a secure location. uh, You know, for example, a number of years ago, my wife actually had a heart attack, and I was pretty concerned because it was actually on payday. And I'm like, okay, how do I pay these bills? Uh, It's a matter of being able to get to those passwords. Now, for us, we're sharing them, but, you know, sometimes just that low tech approach of just writing it down and giving it to someone else, maybe putting it in in someone's safe for safekeeping. Uh, Another thing, a lot of accounts. Now, uh, bank accounts, social media accounts, investment accounts will actually allow you to set up recovery addresses, yeah, which will typically be someone else. So, say, for example, I get a credit card. I make sure that my wife's account is actually on there to where she can speak on it in my absence in case something were to happen to me. Because, you know, not too long ago, and we actually mentioned on this show, there was a gentleman in Canada. Uh, there was a Bitcoin company, and he passed unexpectedly. And he passed with the password, and 145 million dollars to all of his investors were lost because there is no way to recover those. Sometimes you got to have someone who can speak for you once you're gone. And really, when it comes to passwords, if they don't, if somebody else doesn't know your password, I mean, you know, we always say all the time, don't share your passwords. You know, up at work, for example, you um, can, it's I kind of a, like a will, right? You need it, something it really that's is. similar to a will, and yes. it and it can be almost just as as important. The well, only you know, problem with something like that is that whenever somebody changes their password, they have to go to that server service update that or whatever and you have to make sure that people are doing their due diligence to do that because what I've noticed is I'll have a client and they'll be like oh yeah I've got that password in a book and they'll go flipping through this book and they'll be like try this one and they're like no wait that was my old one that's from two years ago try this one mm-hmm. and I'm trying all yeah. these different passwords mm-hmm. because they can't remember which one they wrote down so I've often thought about that like there needs to be a service where that password could be stored with a almost like escrow you know that party has yeah. nothing to do with it they just protect it but Keeping that information up to date is the problem because it's so easy to change your password. Well, and some of that comes back to personal responsibility too, though. It's it's no different than anything else. I mean, you've got you've got to maintain it. You know, going back to our first segment conversation, yes, security can sometimes seem like an inconvenience. But what what's the opposite? What What does it cost you if you don't do it? What does it cost you if you don't? keep those records up and make sure somebody has those unfortunately if you pass away it could mean you know your loved ones and those who are still here are left without so it is our personal responsibility for more tips like this listen to mpb's everyday tech the show is on itunes google Podcasts, spotify and the mpb public media app free in the itunes and google play stores and live weekdays at 10 a.m right here on mpb think radio
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's unemployment rate is just over 5%. That's low, but it doesn't mean no one's looking for work or even looking for better work. The Getting to Work Resume Building Workshop is taking place here at MPB later this week to help out all those job seekers. Joining us with more on building an effective resume is Roy Ballantyne of the Mississippi Community Education Center. They're one of MPB's resume building partners. Ballantyne spoke with MPB's Ezra Wall. Two of
5: the main things that we... we, uh Really emphasize with our clients about resumes or number one, uh, it needs to, uh, not be too long. Uh, we, we try to, uh, work with a one page resume in most cases. Uh, and, uh, as a person who's formerly looked at a lot of resumes to uh, hire people, uh, I know that we tend, if they're too long and too wordy and too lengthy, uh, uh, kind of lose interest and, uh, that person unfortunately may not get the consideration that they may be due. The goal is uh, you want to pick the interest of the, the uh, person, the decision maker, to make them want to, uh, uh, to call you in for an interview. And, uh, and we emphasize to them also that uh, aside from it not being too lengthy, uh, re- we remind them that uh, the goal of the resume is not to get you a job. Goal of the resume is to get you an interview. Then once you get the interview, you sell yourself and uh, you know earn the job through what you tell them in the, in the interview. So when people
6: are sitting there thinking about how much work history to put on the resume, um, if if somebody's applying for a job in a professional field that they've been in for five or six years, and then they've got previous work history to that that was you know at the at the Shopping center, or at the you know fast food restaurant, or those different kinds of uh, non-sort of professional track experiences. How much of that do they need to leave on there once they're six or seven years into their career? Can they just dump that off the resume? Uh,
5: yes, uh, in, in a lot of cases, they they can can eliminate some of those uh, early uh, the startup jobs that they've had, uh, particularly if they don't or are not pertinent to the job they're they're trying to seek now. Uh, certainly they can condense the information on those. And, uh you know, even if they're, uh, for some period of time, they leave those jobs listed on there, they may... Just list a job simply with no additional description of, uh, or no specifics about the job, like they would have about a um, something more relevant to, to the job they're seeking. It
6: happens a lot where somebody might experience a period of unemployment, and that sticks out on a resume. As somebody who's been on the hiring side, I know that, and you certainly know that. Right. Uh, you're looking for those gaps in experience. But what can people do, even if they don't have a full-time equivalent job to put in there, what can people do? either through volunteering activities or educational opportunities to make sure that they have some way to justify their effort during that period of unemployment.
5: Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in, uh, in uh, when you mentioned the volunteer experiences. You know, we, we have a lot of startup people, too, that don't have much work history uh, because they're young and just right out of school and so forth. And uh, you really have to capitalize on on what kind of volunteer experiences they've had. What kind of other seminars, workshops, any kind of training that they may have gotten that would be relevant to to seeking a job, uh, and try to capitalize on those things. Uh, now you can take somebody with uh, with um, uh, limited work experience that have had some life experiences that 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 you can end up making that person look like and. Uh, uh reflect as the uh potential good employee that they that they really might be
6: what's one of the biggest mistakes or no-nos that you see frequently in 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 a first draft of somebody's resume that you help them fix later
5: well uh certainly uh you know grammar and uh spelling errors are, you know unfortunately uh, we see quite a bit of that uh, uh where there's lack of sufficient proofreading uh that uh occurred certainly certainly you want to clean all that up and and, and make sure that it's it's uh correct probably one of the biggest errors is what i mentioned earlier is uh just being too wordy and too lengthy uh you know uh rambling too much uh you know you just really need to hit be very concise and hit the main points uh, so I think those are the main things and, you know, keep it condensed down to, you know, it may not always be possible to have a one-page resume, but most people, you know, you can condense their information and still convey the message you want to convey in in, in about one page. So I think those are some of the most common things that we see. Let
6: me ask about cover letters. When you write a cover letter for your resume, um, how how closely, how fine-tuned should that be for each job that you're applying for versus having a general cover letter that automatically goes with the resume.
5: To some extent, it depends on the jobs that you're applying for, the higher-level jobs, the jobs that require more education and more technical expertise. I think you would want to be pretty specific for that one job. Um, You know, perhaps as you're younger and uh, looking for those startup jobs, you know, something more generic might be uh, suitable in, in, in some cases. But I think any time that you can be more specific in your cover letter, it just shows the employer that they're important, that you really have an interest in that job, and that you're not just, uh, you know, mass-producing email uh, resumes and cover letters just to see what – whatever job you can get. I think it just shows a little bit more specific uh, how interested you really are in that organization, and I think that's certainly a plus.
6: And each resume is different, and there's so many uh, opportunities to make mistakes or to put your best foot forward, and you can learn more about that at the uh, Getting to Work Resume Building Workshop that's going to be right here at MPB. On Wednesday from nine to two, and you can find registration information there. Getting to work dot dot org. Roy, tell me how people can uh, get in touch with the uh, Mississippi Community Education Center.
5: You can reach us. Uh, uh, we have a website uh, uh, msc mscec dot org. Uh, we have centers located throughout the state. You can uh, find our all our center. Uh, Phone numbers on the website, Uh, our local number here in Jackson uh, is 601-366-6405. Or you can just drop by one of our centers. Uh, We always have people available that can uh, uh, help with resumes. Uh, We help with uh, looking for job opportunities. Uh, We work closely with a lot of agencies and organizations uh, such as the Employment Security Commission, uh, the Wind Job Centers, uh, a lot of other agencies that are out uh, promoting and having jobs. We encourage people to register with them, uh for uh, or uh, download the uh, Mississippi Works app uh, on their phone and uh, keep up with the jobs. There's consistently uh, over 40,000, sometimes over 50,000 jobs posted that are available in Mississippi. Uh, and uh, so we do everything we can to help prepare people to. Uh, look for and seek those jobs and help them make contacts with suitable employers that fit their uh, background and experience.
6: Roy Ballantyne with the Mississippi Community Education Center. Thank you very much for your advice today. Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.